following message was given by Tim Abbott on Sunday, February 4th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Good morning and welcome again to Redemption Hill. My name is uh, Tim. I am one of the pastors here. It is, uh, it is truly a joy uh, to be able to gather together as God's people to, uh, to hear God's words and to sing his praises, to pray together. Um, so thank you for joining us uh, this, this morning. We are in the third week of a series on the book of Haggai. Uh, Pastor Raymond has uh, taken us through chapter one the last couple of weeks. And if you haven't gotten anything else out of his sermons, I hope you have learned how to pronounce Haggai. Um, I, almost everybody I know and I've talked to this week pronounces it Haggai. Um, uh, and I've heard uh, five different pronunciations as I've listened to different people uh, this week. Uh, one, one pastor specifically, it was really hard for me to l- listen to him because he pronounced it Haggai, like, hey, guy. Um, and and it, was, it was just tough. I was just like, I, I don't know who's right, but I think you're wrong. Um, uh, I, I, I believe in eternity all things will be made right, and so I, I hope that the, the destroying of this man's name will be set right. Um, I hope he gets the chance to set the record straight. Um, Today we are in uh, chapter 2 of Haggai. Uh, The book of Haggai is divided into four different messages or prophecies from the Lord. Each each of these prophecies, each of these messages is precisely dated. um, And and that is is very purposeful. But today we are looking at the second message that Haggai uh, gives us. So we're going to be looking uh, together at verses 1 through 9 of Haggai chapter 2. Um, you can find those verses on page 791, 791 on the Pew Bible in front of you, or we have some uh, Bibles out on the table in the back as well. Um, but Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. says this. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we turn to you now. Uh, you are uh, the Lord of hosts. You are the Almighty One. 
So, Father, we, we turn to you because we are desperately needy. And so we turn to you as, as those in need. Uh, Father, um, uh, we are, we are um, often uh, discouraged and disheartened, um, and yet you call us uh, to be strong in you. Um, and so I, I pray that you would help us see today what that means. I pray that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives um, I pray that it would strengthen us, uh, not just this morning, but, but throughout the days ahead. Uh, and Father, we, we trust you with it all. We commit it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as we said, the, the book of Haggai is made up of, of four different messages, prophecies, that God spoke through um, Haggai. Pastor Raymond has taken us through Haggai chapter 1. Uh, which is that first message, um, giving us much of the background that we need to know. Uh, the dates in this book, as we mentioned, are specific, and they are very specific on purpose. They help us to see how precise God is in fulfilling his prophecy, how precise God is in doing what he says he's going to do, how perfect his timing is. Our background here is that in, in 586 BC, the Babylonians had taken Jerusalem and the Jews into exile, and they had destroyed the temple that had been built by Solomon, which was an absolute masterpiece, it's a marvel to look at, a masterpiece of architecture, but it had been destroyed and the people had been put into exile. And 50 years later, Cyrus the Persian took Babylon and brought the Babylonian empire to an end the next year, he allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. And they had started the foundation, but they, they had to stop. Um, they had not been able to keep going. And so for another 18 years, they did not continue rebuilding the temple. Um, it is at this point, um, after that 18 years, that Haggai enters and gives his first message for us, we would look at it and say it is August 29th in the year 520 BC. God speaks through Haggai and tells the people in chapter one that you have made yourself and your comfort and your own priorities the priority. You have not prioritized my house and the work that I have called you to. And the, and the, and the result of Haggai's message was an immediate response to return to God. He was calling them back to the work now to prioritize God's word and God's calling. And they began the work of rebuilding the temple. Verses 12 through 15 tells us that the people became obedient and began to work on that, on that temple. So it just took a few weeks, 23 days after Haggai speaks to them. And we've turned the ship around. And so everything in chapter 2 surely is going to be positive moving forward. Um, but there are so many reasons in this world, in, this, in, this, in, in, in our day today, and in, in, in the time that we are talking about now, there are so many reasons to be discouraged. And we are an easily discouraged people. And the people here in Haggai are also easily discouraged. Haggai gives this second message that we're looking at today. It says on the 21st day of the seventh month, this second message comes just a few weeks after Haggai's first message. Haggai had, had, had talked to them and they had started building the work, but in just four weeks, the people had already become discouraged again and they had stopped the work. 
Chapter one, they had, they had started with excitement. They were rebuilding the, 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 the temple that they had longed, that they remembered, that they had longed to see again. And yet in just a few weeks, they had already stopped. Their excitement and enthusiasm to be obedient to God in just a matter of weeks had turned to discouragement, and that discouragement led them to give up the work. We know that this is easy for us. It doesn't take long for discouragement to settle in. These people, these people had come back from exile. They were getting the opportunity finally to rebuild this temple that was so vital and important to their lives. There were so many good things that were happening and going on, but discouraging thoughts still crept into their minds, still crept into their hearts, and it left them feeling like there was no hope, feeling like there was no reason to continue on doing this work. I think many of us know that, that even if there are a hundred good things in our life, even if we can point to a hundred good things going on, that one or two discouraging or difficult things can quickly overshadow all the good, can make it seem like there is no good that is happening. We are a very easily discouraged people, and God knows this about us, and he cares for us. The most often repeated command in the Bible is some version of, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, don't be anxious. That is consistently throughout God's word. It is the most often repeated command. It's commanded more than anything else. That doesn't mean it's the most important command, but it, it shows how, how deeply God knows us, knows that each and every day there is potential for fear and for discouragement. God knows that our hearts are easily prone to discouragement and that we need to hear we need to hear consistently. We do not need to be discouraged. Here in Haggai, they were discouraged and had already stopped this work. And, and, and it only took four weeks to get them to this place. So how did, how did discouragement settle in so quickly? How did it get to this place so quickly? Our daughter is in, in first grade this year. Last year, when she started kindergarten, the first project they give to every uh, kid in kindergarten was to draw a picture of her house and her family. And as most kindergarten pictures are, it was very cute. Um, uh, this was hers, maybe. Uh, we, yes, this is hers. Um, so, so just so you have an idea of what's going on here, it's very cute, it's very wonderful. Um, that is her and her brother and her mom all playing a game very happily inside the house. And that giant monster on the outside that couldn't possibly fit in that house <laughs> is me. Um, and I seem to be pointed away from the house angrily as if to say, stop it, get out. Um, I don't think that I've ever done that. But uh, now for a child's first project in kindergarten, it's wonderfully cute. But if you had lost your house and you were preparing to have a house built for you and the architect and the engineer showed up with this as the plans for your house, you would probably be a little discouraged. Um, you would probably feel a little disheartened. This is essentially what happens here after just a few weeks. They're, they're only a few weeks into the work, but they have already started to believe and, and let it sink in that what we're seeing 
is not good. We're not returning to what we remember. It's going to take a lot of work, and it still won't nearly compare to what we had in Solomon's temple. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, Haggai says, says it this way. He says, ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? And then he says this, this sentence, question, does it not seem to you like nothing? They looked out and saw, and they saw nothing of importance, nothing that seemed significant, nothing that seemed like what they remembered. Many commentators believe that, that Haggai was an older man and that he, it was likely that he had seen himself Solomon's temple. And so he is saying to them, some of us remember how truly glorious that temple was. We saw the glory. The temple of Solomon was, was, was big and huge. It was lined with gold. It was unbelievable to look at. If you read the description of, of this temple in 1 Kings in, in one chapter alone, it uses the word gold to describe it 11 times. The finest wood was used. The gems and fine linens were brought in to decorate this place. It was magnificent. It was legendary. And the people who, who, who had seen it, they loved it. And they treasured it in their memory. And yet now, as they look out on a foundation and ruins... And as they consider rebuilding the temple, they are discouraged. They look at the foundation. They look at the plans. They look at the work, and it seems like nothing to them, nothing that could ever compare to what they had. And as they begin to draw comparisons to what they currently see, to what they, they, they hoped it would be when they started this work, to what they wanted to return to, they are starting to believe that they will never actually see that glory again. The people are discouraged, and out of that discouragement, they stop working. We are easily discouraged, and one of the most common causes of that discouragement is comparison. Comparison easily leads to discouragement. Researchers believe that we spend at least two hours of our day, at least 10% of our lives, comparing ourselves to others. It's a lot of time that we spend just comparing ourselves to others, and most of the time, it doesn't lead to good thoughts about ourselves. It is, it is a growing thing. That comparison also often leads us to feel defeated, hopeless, and discouraged. But we don't just compare ourselves to others. We can also compare our lives with what we've seen in the past. That's what the Jews that Haggai is speaking to are doing. They remember the past. They've heard the stories of the temple. They've heard how great it was, or they saw it themselves. They think about how good they had it, how great that temple was, how big the celebrations were at that temple. And as they compare it to where they're at now, they are getting discouraged. Whatever we have right now, it just isn't quite as good as it was then. We can often stand in pulpits and talk to you about how bad things like the prosperity gospel is, but all of us, all of us, when we are going through a difficult time, when, when things are hard, when it seems like we have less, when it seems like it's not as good, we struggle to believe that now God is truly with us, that God is at work in this as much as he was then. 
We judge these things by how good our life is going, by how, how, how good the material things are in our life that, that lead us to believe that, yes, now I can see that God is good. We look back at better times, times where we had more money, more job security, more friends, less difficulties. Maybe we look at our, our Christian walk right now and we think that our battle against sin, we're failing. We don't treasure God's word enough. We're, we're not making as much of an impact when we, when we when at one point we really cared about people and we were really making an impact. We think about those times where we were serving more, had deeper relationships. And we look back on those times and say, God was truly with us then. But now I'm not so sure. There are times where we look at our culture. People often, often think about and talk about the good old days. The good old days that probably weren't as good as we remember them. But, but many times we long for things in the past, wishing we could get back to the way it used to be. Because that's when we knew that God was on our side. That's, when, that's what the Jews that Haggai is speaking to are coming up against now. They had a big, magnificent temple, a temple that was the talk of the world. The feasts and the celebrations were, were, were gigantic. So many people were there and we're all excited about being together. Then, then we knew that God was with us. But right now, I'm looking at this pitiful excuse of, of a foundation. I'm looking at the ruins, and it's, there's nothing impressive. And it's discouraging to think that it will never be that good again. I loved how it was in the past. And right now, I can't imagine that based on what I'm seeing, that we'll ever get back to that. We can idealize the past and we can idolize the past. We can make the past an idol that prevents us from doing what God wants us to do now. I love what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Philippian church. This is Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. He says, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward or straining forward, working forward to what lies ahead. We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus was ahead. Jesus was there. And all I want to know is Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. There can be things in our past, victories and failures, good times and bad times, that can hinder our current pursuit of Jesus. Memories of better times can sometimes slow us down from recognizing God at work now. So we never let what lies behind keep us from pursuing Jesus with all of our heart. The things in our past can help us learn. They can remind us of God's provision, remind us of God's goodness. They can warn us to flee from our sin, but everything in our past should push us forward to Jesus. The things in our past aren't meant to discourage us from doing the work that God has for us right now. Their job was big. They were rebuilding a temple. It was going to take a long time and a lot of work. It was a, a temple that was meant to be filled with the glory of God. And their strength in this moment and their courage was weak. They started to remember those former days and they had started to believe 
that the work that they were doing would never really amount to anything. They felt inadequate and they felt like the work that they saw was inadequate. And so discouragement was settling in. And so God has a message for them. What is that message? Buck up and get back to work. Um, More accurately, be strong and keep working. It doesn't sound like the greatest motivational speech. Verse 4 of Haggai 2 says, but now... I know you're discouraged. I know you remember how great it was. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. And work. It's not exactly what you wanted to hear. I know you're discouraged, so get back to work. Be strong. God repeats these words three times. Be strong, be strong, be strong. We take words like these in the church, especially today, and we use them as motivational speeches to to find in ourselves a strength, to find in ourselves the ability to be strong, to, to believe that we can do whatever we want. The truth is, when God is calling us to be strong, he is calling us to something better than just finding strength in ourselves. He is calling us to believe confidently in who God is and what he has called us to do, to be unwavering in our faith and belief that God is who he says he is. We are not strong enough on our own to do the things that God has called us to do. It's a nice thought. We don't have the strength inside of us. Our strength will fail. I know so many of you are trying to are trying to do this. You're trying to just be stronger. Find it in yourself. Just, just tell yourself, be strong. And you can't figure it out. You just can't make it happen. You're trying to be strong and hold your family together. You're trying to be strong for hurting and discouraged friends. You're trying to be strong in every area of your life. And it is weighing you down. You cannot do it on your own. You don't have to just find a way to be stronger. There's good news. You aren't that strong. You aren't strong enough. No matter how strong you are, you aren't strong enough. But God is. And if you will acknowledge and just see and believe and and admit that you are desperately weak, And that you need God. And you believe he is as strong as he truly is. If you believe that God is who he says he is, then you will be amazed at the power of God in your life. That is the power that is available to you. Not your strength and finding enough of it. It is the power of God that is available to your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, God is speaking to us. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the strength that we want. That's the strength that we need. When God tells us to be strong, we are believing that he is who he says he is, that he is the Lord Almighty, that there is no other power that can come against him. God, our caring Father, knows when we are discouraged. He knows when we are about to give up. He knows us so well. 
When he calls for us to do the work, he is calling us to be strong and take courage, not in what we can do, but to believe who he is and, and what he is going to do. And in that, we find real lasting strength. Otherwise, our strength will just ebb and flow, get stronger and then fail again and again. But in him, we find real lasting strength. He is calling us to faithfulness. He is calling us to believe in him and his strength. He is calling us to believe his promises. He tells us to be strong and work. And while we are so easily prone to pull that out by itself and, and put it on our wall to, to, to look at, that phrase was never meant to be heard alone. He quickly proclaims his promise to us in verses four and five. After he says, be strong, be strong, be strong, work. Then he tells them, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. And just a few words later, my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I am with you. My spirit is with you. I am the Lord Almighty. When God calls us to be obedient, to take action, he always ties that together with his promises. When God calls us to be strong and not fear, he is quick to remind us that he is always with us so we don't have to fear. He reminds us that he is the one that is at work. So when we look at it and say, I don't know that the work is going anywhere. I'm not sure that it's significant. He reminds us, I'm at work. You don't have to be discouraged. We mentioned earlier that the most repeated command in the Bible is do not fear, and this is said to us in verse 5, but the most repeated promise in the Bible is this promise right here, and it is the most comforting. I am with you. I am with you. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of it, we are, we are reminded that God is with us. David wrote in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm just that confident? No, because God is with me, for you are with me. God spoke, spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41, saying, do not fear, for I am with you. God told Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. Jesus told his followers Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. I am with you forever and wherever you go. In the book of Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, the people of God have been wandering in the wilderness for years. They're discouraged. They have lacked faith. They have complained. They have been fearful. And they are about to finally enter the promised land, but there's still obstacles ahead. The thing that they have longed for for so long is about to happen, but there's still obstacles ahead. And Moses tells them, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. But Moses doesn't end there. He immediately reminds them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Soon after that, God is talking to Joshua. Moses has died and God is commanding Joshua to lead the same people into the promised land. God tells Joshua three times again these same words. He's telling him to be strong. God tells him, Joshua chapter 1 verses 5 through 7, just as I was with Moses, 
so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. He begins with the promise. I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Then he tells them, be strong and courageous. You shall cause this people to inherit the land. The work that you are called to is going to be a good thing. I'm going to do great things. I shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So be strong and courageous. And then again in verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. And he closes again with the promise, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Moses is no longer with Joshua, but God is. The Jews here in Haggai, Solomon's temple was no longer with them, but the God of that temple was with them. The God of all creation was with them. When David was encouraging Solomon to build this, that first temple that they looked back on, God gave David these same exact words. He says to Solomon, be strong and courageous and do the work. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. David spoke to Solomon the same exact words that Haggai is speaking now to the Jews. The God that was with Solomon when that first temple was built was the same God that was with the Jews as they began rebuilding. God was with them. That's what made it great. These are big promises, and God sometimes gives us big commands. Even when they're not big commands, it's hard to keep, keep them often. I, I, I just want to be honest with you. I, I struggle to believe this. I, I, I fail often to believe that God is really with me. I often think of God as more like uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Uh, after Obi-Wan dies, he becomes sort of a, a guide for Luke Skywalker, and his, and his voice just pops into Luke's head in the most important and biggest moments, guiding Luke to destroy the Death Star. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> But most of the time, Obi-Wan is silent, nowhere to be seen, but his voice shows up at the most important and the biggest moments, the most pivotal moments. That's how I tend to think about God's presence in my life. I'm on my own 99.9% .9 of the time. He's just called me to go and do stuff and, and, and I'm just on my own. But if the moment is big enough, I believe that he'll show up. It is easier for me to believe that God took his people into that promised land. It is easier for, for me to believe that God took a few men and defeated armies. It's easier for me to believe that God opened up seas and let his people walk through it. It is often easier for me to believe those things than it is to, be, to believe that God is with me today, that God is with me tomorrow, whatever the situation might be. Do I truly believe that God is with me in the, in the difficult conversation that I have to have? Do I believe that God is, is with me in the difficult situation that, that you're going through right now? Charles Spurgeon once said, we often treat God's promises like they are curiosities in a museum. It is easier to believe God's promises were true as we read them as, as ancient stories, as we read them in the, in the Bible. We look at them and we're amazed by them. But 
Are they true for us in our present situation? Are they true for us tomorrow? God's promises are all true. And we must believe that that they are just as true for God's people today in our present situations as they were thousands of years ago. His promises are a very present reality. He is a very present help. And we need to believe that at all times and in every situation. For most of us, we have an idea. We have an idea of when God shows up. We have an idea of the really important and really big things that that are important to, to, to God. And it causes us to question if the things that we think are are insignificant are really important to God. We look around and we judge whether something is significant or not. And we expect God to think the same as if we're the judge of what is truly glorious and truly wonderful. We are not the judge. We are not the ones who get to determine the significance of the work that is going on. We are not the ones who have the final word in in, in this. How could we ever then belittle a work that God is doing? If God says he is with us in it, how could we ever make it out like it's insignificant? When God is working and he is with you, nothing is insignificant. God is with us. When we teach the children and RH kids, God is with us when we teach our kids at home the stories of the Bible. God is with us if you help set up this church to be prepared for Sunday morning worship. God is with us as we prepare our hearts and our minds to come in to to worship on Sundays. God is with us when we open our homes and welcome people in to show them hospitality. God is with us when you reach out to your discouraged friend to have have lunch and listen to them and encourage them. God is with us if we go across the world to share the gospel with unreached people. And God is also with us when we go across the street to share the gospel with our neighbor. God is with us when we we take that step to start serving those who who are hurting, poor, and in need. God is with us in the things that feel huge and impossible and overwhelming, but God is also with us in things that often seem insignificant. God was with these people when Solomon's temple was built huge and magnificent, but he was also with these people as the foundation was laid for a temple that seemed much less magnificent in their eyes. And that should give us boldness and confidence to follow him in obedience. It should also give us confidence that even in what seem like small acts of faithfulness, God is at work. There are not small or insignificant things in in faithfulness to God. He takes them and he uses them. And it is the fact that God is at work that makes them significant. I really enjoy sitting down with people when they come to, to this church and we do membership interviews or somebody's coming in and, and we get to hear their testimony and hear their story. We ask them about those things. And, and it probably speaks to the humility of the people in this church. But 90% of the time, people start their story by saying, I don't really have an amazing testimony. And, and I, think, I think often the same, the same way. We have, we have often heard people who share stories of what they've come out of, what God has done in their life. And we think, wow, that's, that's an amazing testimony. But that's, that's not, 
my testimony, my story isn't that good. And I always try to encourage those people that if the God, the creator of the universe, the maker of all things has saved you from your sins and made you a part of your family and is at work in your life, then you have an amazing, miraculous story. God is the one that makes our story glorious. We do not. God is the one that makes the work glorious. God is the one that made the temple glorious, not the gold. God is the one that is glorious, and he is the one that makes all things glorious. The glory of Solomon's temple had been lost forever, but a greater glory was yet to come. Verses 6 through 9 of Haggai 2 This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. The giant, golden, beautiful temple is gone, but you know what isn't gone? The glory of God. All it takes for even the most incredible structures to disappear is for the earth to shake, and it is gone forever. The earth shakes, the mountains fail, the seas roar, but God's glory still remains. God is the one who will shake the heavens and the earth. He is the one that will shake the nations. Nothing can stand unless God determines that it is so. Nothing has glory unless God fills it with glory. And if he fills it with glory, then it is indeed glorious. God is the one that is at work, and he has promised to do great things. So take courage, be strong. Work and fear not, because that God has promised to work. That God is promised to be with you. That God is going to do great and mighty things. All the people see is a poor version of the temple that they remember from their childhood, but that temple wasn't glorious because of all the gold, all the cedar, all the jewels, and every beautiful thing that you can imagine. That temple was glorious because God was there. And God promises to take us and use us and use the work that we were doing and fill it with glory. He takes your work and uses it to show his glory. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That is a beautiful statement. God had a purpose for this temple that he had told them to rebuild. The Jews of Haggai's day could not see it. They couldn't see those things. And what they did see seemed so insignificant. So God came to them with a word of promise. Take courage. I am with you. I'm going to make this place even more glorious than the one you remember. I'm going to make this place even more glorious than the one that you've heard all the stories about. The things that we believe are insignificant are things that God uses to show us his glory. We must believe that. We must take confidence in that every day and in every situation. God has shown us this throughout history. He's shown us that throughout his word. 
And he has shown us that so perfectly in Jesus. This is how Isaiah chapter 53 talks about Jesus. This is God giving a prophecy through Isaiah. This is how, this is how we see Jesus. This is how we receive Jesus. It says, he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That phrase, esteemed him not, literally means that we saw him as nothing. We considered him insignificant. We looked at Jesus and saw something that wasn't worthy of glory. We, lo we looked at Jesus and saw something insignificant. And yet, it is Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. It is Jesus who has conquered life's greatest enemies, sin and death. It is Jesus who has saved us from our sins. It is Jesus that you and I are made righteous if we believe and trust in him. It is Jesus who is the head of the church. In Christ, God has shaken the world. And when this world comes to an end, it will be God's kingdom alone that re remains. And it is Jesus who, re who reigns forever and ever. It is to Jesus in Hebrews 1 that God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We looked at him and we esteemed him not, but the Savior of all of us, the most glorious in all creation, the, the, the one who reigns over all things, Jesus the most glorious, who will reign forever and ever. And the only reason we get to see that glory is because of him. God takes things that seem insignificant and uses them to proclaim his glory. And that should lead us to confidently do all that God has called us to do. Discouragement does not have the final say in our life. Sin and death do not have the final say in our life. There's so much that can be discouraging in this life. There's so much that can be disappointing and disheartening, but that does not have the final say in our life. We will be transformed into the righteousness of Christ, and we will spend eternity with, with the king in his kingdom forever and ever. And in the most glorious kingdom of all, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Take courage, be strong. God is with you. God gets all the glory. In everything that we do, God gets all the glory. And that is a beautiful and good thing. And so we can trust him perfectly. We can move forward towards him, pursuing him, seeking after him, and doing what he has called us to do. Let's pray together. Father, we just confess that we are needy and weak and we thank you that you have called us to be strong um, to do the work that you have for us and and yet we often don't feel like it um, we often are discouraged father 
um, remind us, remind us of who you are, remind us of your power, that there is, that you are all powerful, that you are all knowing, that you are love, that you care for us. Father, that you are at work and that we can believe that and trust in that. Father, we have seen the end. You have proclaimed that you, through your son, are victorious. You will conquer every enemy. You will wipe away every tear. Father, so strengthen us today. Encourage us with those with those words. Remind us that you are a very present help. You are with us. You are right, right by us. You are at our right hand, Father. You guide us. Father, let, let that lead us to confidently seek after you, follow after you, to be obedient to what you have called us to do. Father, we don't, we don't need or want the glory. We want all glory to be to you. So remind us of all these things. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for being here today with us. We thank you that you will be with us as we walk out of here today. Thank you for it all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Tim Abbott, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.